Kristen. What? No, John. Just... Just Andy? Alright. Andy can finally talk about Lost and Rob and Amber too. This is what it's come to after one whole year with nothing new. Let's all see if Andy gets to say take off your knob. Andy, 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 Rob, 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 Rob. It's the Purple Rock Survivor All-Stars Podcast with Romper. Sha-la-la-la. Hello and welcome to the Purple Rock Survivor Podcast. I am your host, Andy, and there's no one else with me for this one. Uh, I've decided to just conduct a little experiment here. I know uh, many uh, longtime listeners will be like, oh my god, he's done it. He's finally uh, found a way to talk to the only person he wants to talk to, a way to do a podcast without being interrupted. But I'll I'll be uh, clear that that's not necessarily an ambition of mine because, of course, this means I have nobody else to interrupt, and I love that very ever so much. But, yeah, I just thought I'd give this a shot because I I have recently uh, re-watched Survivor All-Stars, and I have some thoughts to share, and I honestly didn't feel like writing them down. And of course, nobody else watched it. You know, none of the other uh, staff members. Uh, you know, I watched this with my family. So, um, yeah, this might be a disaster. High likelihood it will be. No idea how long this will take. You guys will have known already based on the time when this is posted. Of course, it might be posted with part one, part two, but let's hope not. But uh, yeah, just a, a discussion about the first returnee season in the history of Survivor. So when talking about Survivor All-Stars, the biggest thing to discuss, and perhaps for some people the only thing worth discussing, um, is the incident between Richard Hatch and Susan Hawk, which is to say the time that Richard Hatch sexually assaulted Sue Hawk in front of the entire cast and crew of Survivor. This could be... All that you know, people are concerned about with this because it is a major event, and in some ways, you know, trying to set it aside to discuss other things, which I will do later in this podcast, is um, beside the point. And for some people, that 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 is it. This is the only thing, the only impression they need for the season, and the only reason they need for disliking it. And I'm not going to argue against that. It's a serious incident, and. Uh, So let's discuss it now. The interesting thing about the incident is that it is incredibly brief. This isn't a a situation like in Survivor Island of the Idols where, you know, there are multiple incidences with Dan leading up to the bigger one and then an extended fallout. Um, You know, there's no, you know, lead up. There's no, you know, extended period of harassment. Uh, the season is just progressing, and then in one moment, during a challenge, when Richard Hatch decides to, you know, compete in it nude, and then decides to, you know, rub his genitalia up against Susan Hawk within the obstacle course they're in, that's it. It happens, and, you know, I would wager to say that the entire incident takes less than half a minute. Um and when you, you view it, it's easy to understand why certain members of the cast may not have actually even known it happened. You know, if they are on other parts of the course, if they are, you know, 
behind other people online waiting for their turn if they're just not focused on what's happening with you know hatch and sue um i think it's entirely believable that they did not know that it would happen it was just a very much a blink of an eye incident and in fact it's filmed in such a way that we don't actually see contact which is not surprising they would not generally show uh, genitalia on uh, network television. Um, but yeah, we get a view in which I believe we get the front view of Sue with Hatch behind her. Richard Hatch has used this as his defense uh, when, you know, whenever somebody, you know, calls him out on it on social media, a lot of which happened after the fallout of Survivor Island of the Idols. And he, he will maintain that he did not touch Sue in this moment. That you know, and that there there are camera angles out there that will exonerate him because there's nothing Richard Hatch loves more than to pass blame off of for his actions on somebody else. And if it can be the producers of Survivor, all the better. And it's true. I don't see that uh, specifically happens again because that wouldn't be shown on television if it had. However, I don't need to see it in order to not believe Richard Hatch because I've seen the reaction of Susan Hawk and she is who I choose to believe. And it's not just that, you know, the next episode, that is when the major fallout happens. But when they are returning from the challenge, she brings it up to her tribe then. Did you guys all see what was going on with Hatch? That was disgusting. So I'm comfortable just believing her version of the events. If there has been... Um, any discussion with her uh, since then where she's recanted, then you know, I would feel differently, but I've never come across it. And I would imagine that, you know, Hatch and his uh, constant attempts to, you know, save his own reputation and show that, you know, he absolutely deserved to be on the 40th season of Survivor. I imagine he would point to such a thing. I don't think such a thing exists. So, um I have all the evidence I need because I get, I'm not a judge or a jury. I am somebody who just believes it is important to believe victims. And that's what happened here. Now, the other thing that uh, within the incident that I think you know, made people maybe not realize the gravity of it at the time was how it enters. So it is during a challenge when they are on like a balance beam type obstacle course where they have to go at different places. And... Um, Susan is just finishing her run. Richard Hatch is finishing off on hers. She is given, there is a path that she could take um, that would not put her in, you know, Richard Hatch's way at all. It seems to be the more direct path to the end of her course, but she decides, no, she wants to go this other way. And some people would then use that to suggest that she invited this confrontation, that, you know, there, that maybe she shares some level of blame, to which I say, no. That's not how it works. Look, maybe the longer path she took, the less direct path. If it is even that, obviously I can't tell the full you know, geography of a course that I'm not in. Maybe that was the easier way to balance. So she knew she would be able to finish her task more easily this way. Maybe, though, she just wanted to be an obstacle for Richard Hatch. That is allowed. That is part of the challenge. You know, it's not, you know, if all she wanted to do was interfere in the other team for a short period of time, that she should be allowed to do so without feeling like she will be later violated for doing so. You know, his choice, uh, which we will, well, we, I will get into 
to do this challenge nude does not then give him like a bubble space uh, that is not afforded to other content, uh, competitors. During this challenge, there is a, even a portion, a part of the course where you know, duels were set off that if you wanted to wait to prevent somebody from crossing this one bridge, then the two of you would have to fight it out. Um, loser does not get to continue on, winner does. Um, incidentally, everybody who competed that ended up falling off, or almost every time uh, falling off, and it would just become who hit the water first. This is actually why Hatch is naked at this. He does not start the challenge uh, naked. He's wearing his shorts. He gets knocked into the water and then decides, well, that's it. The shorts are coming off. So any, like, reasoning or things to try to suggest that, like, Sue invited this, she might have invited a confrontation with a competitor, which was well in the bounds of the contest. She did not invite being violated by Hatch. I suppose the next thing that's held against her by some of her very own tribe mates, which we will get to, or cast mates as it were, is that during the incident, um, you know, she seems to be, you know, it almost seems like joking around. Hatch is certainly joking around in the moment and she seems to be giving it back. So the idea is like, oh, it didn't seem to bother her at the time. That is immaterial. Uh, maybe she is just doing that to not be victimized at the moment, you know, show, you know, not wanting to have a moment of weakness. Or yes, it's entirely valid that in the moment, she's just getting through the moment, and then later when she has time to think about it, it feels much worse. These None of this is a, you know, a way to invalidate her experience, or is it a way to defend what he does? The simple fact of the matter is that he should not have done that. He should not have been nude. And you know, if he then decides to be nude, which is not a decision he should have been able to make, and I'll get into that, then... It's on him to avoid any level of confrontation, and it's certainly on him to not pantomime violating somebody's physical space with your own genitalia. So even if you believe Hatch, and you should not because he is not somebody who deserves our you know, belief at this moment, he certainly acted like he was rubbing himself up against her, and that act itself is demeaning um, in a way that you know could really hurt somebody in the way that uh, Sue reacts to it. So, yeah, I just I wanted to talk about the incident in that respect, just to dispel any of the victim blaming that occurs in the show and you know may occur outside of the show. I, I imagine not by a lot of listeners of this program, but you never know who is listening. So how does this happen? How does Survivor have a challenge in which one of the competitors is naked? It should be, of course, noted that this is not the first time that this happens. Um, Pearl Islands, the season right before this, three men strip naked in order to compete. It's a bit of a different challenge in that they're not um, you know, physically interacting with the other tribe the same way. So there's less incident for there. But it happens. Where, how this comes about is... Richard Hatch famously in the very first season of Survivor gets naked sometimes at camp and he treats this very much as his right to expression that, you know, it's his bohemian rejection of like uh, conservative ideals and restrictions on people's bodies that people are, you know, way too oppressed and uptight about things like nudity. And what's interesting is that that was kind of like the liberal view at the time. And it was very easy to say, like, I'm sure 
Survivor got like a lot of you know mail from like conservative groups like how dare you put the smut on television or you know during the family hour even at that so it's interesting that like at that time I think you know the him being free from himself might have even been viewed as you know like more of a liberal position which just shows that you know we had some growing to do in this respect because in this instance and frankly around camp the whole deal it's not a more freeing um, way of thinking. It's you putting your own um, wants and desires above the comfort of other people, you know, and, and, and then it leads to the incident with Sue where, yes, then you can come in contact, but frankly, just forcing, you know, his nudity, you know, his casual nudity on people around camp is also unacceptable. And we get uh, interviews, most people are, you know, treated like, ha, 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 there's Richard Hatch again. This is his thing. Frankly, like, that is the reaction when he drops his shorts. Oh, Hatch is being Hatch again. But, you know, there is discomfort. It's, not, it's tough to place because it's, like, mixed in with, like, Colby Donaldson's uh, aggressive homophobia. I swear he never refers to Richard once without referring to the fact that he is either gay or overweight or frequently both. It's pretty gross, in fact. But yeah, it shouldn't be that way. It's it's forcing people into uh, you know an uncomfortable space with your sexuality, even if for Hatch it might not be a sexual thing. I'll accept that, but that doesn't excuse it. Um, but that's how it happens because you know the show was taught that like this is the way it should be, and this character feels this way, and to you know feel opposite is like you know. You know, clamping down on his freedom of expression and is just conservative. And nowadays, it's almost easy to see like that 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 relationship would be inverse. And like, if Survivor, you know, came out and said we will never have Richard Hatch on our show because of this, which frankly they probably should, um, it would be easy to see conservative groups being like, I had another example of liberal cancel culture run amok. I get, no, I, I find it a little interesting how the tables have turned. And, and I don't say this as a way of like pointing out like liberal hypocrisy or anything like that, but just more that um, we also had things to learn that, yeah, there are boundaries that we need to respect in society. Um, even if, you know, the people pushing those boundaries seem more ideologically, you know, uh, connected to us. So the incident itself is almost, you know, from a TV perspective, blink and you miss a type situation, but it is not swept under the rug. And, you know, one of the, obviously the incident himself is the worst part, but right up there is the reaction to Sue's reaction. Um, and in many cases, it's just gross. Uh, looking at the cast, there's only like maybe two or three people you can say really come off good in this situation. Uh, Jenna and Alicia, especially, you know, just seem supportive. Alicia is the one who, you know, helps explain to people that, yes, maybe in the moment, you know, she thought she was handling it, but she's had time to think about it. This is, you know, good support. Uh, I'd say Amber also, I think, shows some level of support or understanding. She doesn't say a lot about it, as I recall, which could be the edit protecting her. Uh, next step up is the people who at least don't say horrible things or don't exclusively say horrible things. So, like, you know, Rob in this instance allows for the possibility that, you know, what Sue is going through is real and, um, you know, 
horrible. When she brings it up on the walk back to camp, he was like, yeah, I saw that. That was awful, which, you know, almost, uh, you know, in, in this level, the people that we're comparing to comes off as support. Although, again, I don't know if we can discount that this also could be an expression of Rob's own homophobia, that it was gross, that it was coming from Hatch. Um, but, you know, it almost comes off like allyship in comparison to the rest. But, you know, in the same breath when he's talking about that, you know, this is, you know, maybe she's really hurting and this is a thing. He does bring up the possibility that many others will, that like maybe this is a scheme to you know, get money out of the show. I don't know if anybody says that specifically, but hinting at it. Or, you know, possible that this is some kind of gameplay thing, much in the way that the Gandia Ted situation was treated in Thailand. Weirdly, that that incident is referenced in this season during a challenge as like, you know, one of the wacky memories of Survivor seasons gone past. That's a choice. Um but yeah, so that's the next level where people will at least allow for the possibility that, you know, Sue is telling the truth about what she's going through. And then the next tier is um, and personified by like Rupert and Tom is the straight out denial that, yeah, this is just a show that she's doing. I mean, because she, she feels bad being caught on TV and her husband's going to see it or that she's working some kind of angle. And you'd think that that is the worst that any of these people uh, say. Except then you get Kathy. And uh, Kathy, uh, I'd always remembered as being one of the bad reactions. And I had remembered it similar to, you know, like Rupert, Tom. Uh, I believe there's probably some others that were on Kathy's tribe. Um, but no, uh, Kathy takes it to another level. Uh, worse than, I'd say, any of the reactions in Island of the Idols. Because at least um, the people there had to square what, you know, they were hearing from Kelly about the incident with the gameplay that was going on at the time, including, say, Kelly's own attempts to flip the game and move away from voting out Dan to other things. Um, there were no more gameplay things involved in this. Kathy learns of this incident as Sue is leaving. They have already voted out Richard Hatch. Um, but for Kathy, this was still just an unforgivable faux pas that, that Susan would dare bring this level of negativity into her space. And she, she really resents her for that. It's just a stunning lack of empathy. And not that it, like, you know, blows my mind that a person could be like that. It blows my mind that a person could say that out loud and feel like, you know, she is, you know, representing herself well. That, that she thinks that people at home would be watching and nodding being like, yes, yes, I get it. Most telling is that Kathy doesn't seem to be denying what Susan's saying. She's not saying that, like, you know, this is some kind of angle, a game thing, like, you know, those other assholes I was talking about. For all, it kind of seems the way she's saying it. It's like, yeah, she does believe Sue. She does think that that happened and that she felt bad. She just doesn't think that Sue should have said anything about it. And why? Because it made Kathy feel bad. That is... Again, the most awful thing about all of this is what Richard did. But Kathy is next. It, that's just, it paints her as just a horrible person. And I never let that go for the rest of the season. That, it's, 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 I, I'm, you know, here I am obviously talking to myself and I'm struggling to come up with words because it's just, just stunningly awful. So in the annals of this discussion and frankly in the annals of Survivor I don't think we give enough heat to Kathy Vavrick O'Brien for what an absolute piece of shit she is like it is just awful that, that her take from all of this is 
that Sue is the one who made this ugly. And how did she do that? By expressing her anger and, and hurt over what was done to her, about how she was victimized, about how the show failed to protect her, all of which is completely accurate. Uh, and Kathy is just like, well, I don't think she should have done that. And she even does the whole thing. It's like, I'm sorry if that makes me a bad person, but that's how I feel. And it's like, yes, it makes you a horrible person, but you're not sorry. So, yeah, that's uh, kind of what it all is. And I think for some people, if this incident just defines the entire season for you, I get it. This, it should be ranked as one of the worst seasons of all time. I watched this season with my family, uh, which, yeah, because of this incident was like, eh, should I, should I not? But I knew like they were interested in seeing some of their favorites again, Colby, Ethan, and especially Rupert. To the fact, like, they were excited when they first saw them, and then after a while, all they cared about was Rupert. But then I was like, well, what do I do about this? What do I do about this ugly incident? And, and the one thing is, because Richard is voted out that night for entirely different reasons, and because Sue leaves the next episode, like, it, it's not present for the rest of this season. Like, it is easy to just cut out these two episodes and have the rest of the season not be colored by that, which, you know, again, is a choice. I think it's probably part of why Survivor was so slow to act on Island the Idols because they got bailed out here. Through no actions of their own, the principals involved in this were both gone shortly after it happened. But, no, um, we watched the whole thing, and I honestly felt it was a pretty good teaching uh, opportunity. As I said, the incident itself is... You know, barely seen and doesn't take very long. So it's not like this graphic thing I was forced them. Frankly, I don't think they understood what was happening. I did prep them throughout the season up until that point. Like, they obviously have a reaction to a man being naked on TV. Now, like many children, a lot of the times, the reaction to male nudity is, you know, to titter, to laugh. But, you know, I would be like, would you like to be in that environment? Would you like to be around somebody who's naked all the time? And then they're like, no, not really. When this is something, it's like, well, would you like it if somebody did that? And obviously the answer is no. It's like, and of course, you know, reinforcing the consent discussions we've been having with them their whole lives. It's like, you know, you would always talk to us about that. Is something like this ever happened? Um, that it's not your fault, that stuff like this. And this is why I honestly thought it was a bit of an educational opportunity because we have had discussions about consent, both uh, them giving consent for you know, their own bodies and them you know, needing to wait for consent for others, um, you know, other, you know, touching others, certain elements of touching that they don't engage in at all at this stage. But those discussions are largely, you know, theoretical for them, hopefully theoretical uh, for a lot of their lives. Although, you know, one is getting <laughs> probably so that that period of their time where it's theoretical is coming to a close. But this is a real world example. And we were able to talk like especially as Susan starts talking about it and starts expressing her feelings. It started, I, you know, I would hope. And again, we stopped the episode to talk about it with them some more. This is the reaction. This is what can happen to somebody. This is the way you could make somebody feel for, you know, failing to get consent, uh, to do things to them and their person that they did not want to, uh, to be done. So, you know, from there, that was good discussion. It kind of sucked for <laughs> that, that, you know, people that they were liking on TV, you know, Rupert especially saying these things. But again, that gave 
more time to discuss things because when that started happening again i stopped it and it's like and was a you know refute what those people were saying hopefully in a way that did not make my kids feel bad for maybe believing it they're hearing adults say these things they think maybe there must be something to it i was able to nip that in the button that, that like this is why it's so hard for some people to come forward with things like this because there are attitudes like that. And, you know, I explained that hopefully attitudes are changing and I want to make sure they know that they should never worry about somebody saying like this, that if there's something that they needed to worry about, they come to us. So I don't know. You know, if you're thinking that like, oh, what a horrible you know, parent. Well, how could he expose his kids to this? I, I think it went well. I think, yeah, I, obviously I wish it hadn't gone at all. But, you know, in terms of examples, um, I think it gave us a lot to talk about. And, yeah, they there was some understanding or at least expressions of understanding. We'll see how much they understand going forward. So um, that's a lot on this. I, I Hopefully I've given it uh, its due as part of the discussion, but absolutely any kind of discussion people want to have in comments. Um, I will move on, like the show itself did, to other topics. If you feel that's a little uh, unfair to do so, I respect that. But, you know. I have other things I'd like to discuss as well. So the next thing that I should probably talk about, if uh, you are still listening, is a thing that maybe will stop some people from listening. Most people listening to this will already know. But who knows how people come to a podcast, a particular episode, so I should state it out front now. I am a Boston Rob fan. Uh, that informs my opinion of this season, the way I viewed it. And the reason I'm a Boston Rob fan is because of this season. I didn't particularly like him in his first season, Marquesas. Uh, I thought he mostly was just kind of a arrogant douchebag, which might make people think, well, then what changed, really? Because it's not like he stops being arrogant in this season, not even remotely. And I think what changed is competency. I don't necessarily mind arrogance if it feels earned. If it feels unearned, like Jackass, who was you know, just losing a bunch in Marquesa at a time when losing really mattered, especially tribe you know, losses, just seemed like a dumbass. But here, doesn't do a whole lot of losing, not until the end, of course. So just, uh, I think that's what attracted me uh, to him as a character. It, he was out there doing things, and I think it's hard to put in context a bit for you know, somebody who's coming into Survivor a little later, like from a modern perspective. But at that time, eight seasons in, I hadn't seen a lot of players control the game at the level that he did in this season. It's something that, frankly, I had wanted to see. That like when you watch it and you're watching at home and you know they make these mistakes of you know say like an Alex Bell and Amazon or others like that where they they don't shore up alliances they don't let people think that they're on their side and all that there would there would always be left wanting or often be left wanting about the fact that there there seemed to be a lot of strategy and moves that were not attempted out on Survivor. You know, this is why going into the season, my favorite player was Rob Sesternino, uh, another player who started to change the game a bit by doing more, being more active, which was something that I was really wanting to the point where like I even found some enjoyment in like a Brian Heideck win because it seemed at least like he was doing something didn't enjoy him and I didn't enjoy that season but I was like oh I mean at least he's doing stuff so that's I think where it starts for me as a Boston Rob fan and ultimately 
I'm probably equal fan of like a handful of players, but I've been branded a Boston Rob fan to the point where like he, he's probably yeah. If you ask me, that's who I'll say is my favorite player because only in like the weird world of hyper survivor fandom does being a fan of Boston Rob defending Boston Rob become like a like an unusual opinion something that can make you stand out yeah everywhere else he's one of the most popular players ever but yeah here you know that I don't say oh he's completely overrated and all that you know makes it almost a unique statement and uh, I love nothing more than having somewhat something that gives the appearance of a unique opinion but yeah, I truly believe that he had a level of control over this game that I had not seen in any previous season and have not seen many other seasons. And this is why the criticisms of his eventual win in Redemption Island don't really ring true to me. Everybody's like, oh, he was just controlling a bunch of dummies. You know, they, they didn't do anything to stop him. Well, he did it way before then with the greatest assemblage of talent in that point in Survivor history. He did it in All-Stars. And then he did it again in Redemption Island. So it just seemed like it was the same game I saw before, just ported to another season. The difference, of course, is he won one season and lost the other. But the level of control, the level of, you know, why aren't these people doing something? How can they not stop him? I guess if you want, and I I know a lot of people definitely want, to just always say that it's because the other people are stupid as opposed to acknowledging the constant in those groups, which is him and his actions. Have fun. That, that's the way it's going to be. I'm going to go the other way and attribute it to him and what he does. And like... Let's talk about the things that he did. Uh, the biggest one is he got another tribe to vote his way. That is probably the moment where I really took notice of him. Um, where probably before that, it was like, oh, I don't know. It's okay. There's a few impressive moments. But frankly, like, he voted out my favorite player. But when he did that, I couldn't help but tip my cap because that's insane. Uh, never been done before or since. Now, there's an asterisk. Maybe uh, it's a good reason why nobody's done it since. And obviously, a big reason why he was able to do it is because of the personal relationship that he had coming into the game with Lex. I'll say before that, I didn't know there was one. So, you know, when I was first watching and impressed, that didn't even factor in. But frankly, like, it's not like that was the only personal connection heading into the game between the only two people there. That season was all about personal connections, and only Rob was the one that was able to execute something on that level. I mean, Lex himself wasn't even able to, like, capitalize in his personal connection with Tom once they merged. So that he was able to, you know, sit there and say, like, hey, save her and I'll help you. Just the audacity of it at the moment. Like, okay, yeah, but right, that's cool, but that's not going to happen, right? And then they get back to camp and they're talking about it. And they are talking about it strategically. Now, I'll be fair to them. I'm sure there's a lot of personal stuff that was a big motivator for it. A lot of personal stuff that did not make the edit because the show really tried to edit around the fact that all of these predetermined relationships had a huge uh, impact this season. Maybe not as big as an impact as like people want to say because a lot of those just kind of formed and fell apart as they do in all returning seasons. But it was definitely an element of the story that the edit was working around. But there was the strategic reason too that if we do this, we vote out Amber and then we merge. Rob will be mad at us and that'll be trouble for us because they would be going into the merge down numbers that he was able to exert that level of control that like his own tribe was scared to ever make a move against him. And so was the other tribe. 
that blew my mind. And um, honestly, don't feel like that gets discussed enough in Survivor circles of like what an all time move that is. He got other people to do his bidding, people that were not on his tribe, not on his alliance, in his alliance. And I, honestly, I don't know why people don't talk about it more. I have theories. One being, of course, that people don't really like the season and like talk about it. And of course, the bigger one is people aren't excited to give Rob the credit he deserves. Um, Yeah, he was as obvious a threat as there has ever been in this game. He was winning challenges left and right. He was the clear leader of his tribe, and he only made it double with the fact that he had a partner that was by no way hidden. He and Amber were not subtle but what was going on like he won the car and then brought her usually that's the whole deal you bring your only ally and reward and leave those other people behind that spells your doom she comes back and tells them all that she won a car too and they still don't make a move against them that again exhibits a level of control over the game that is near unheard of there was no meaningful move ever made to not even remove Boston Rob, but even weaken him because they could have voted out Amber at any time that Rob was immune. Final five, especially. And no, and I know you know people would like to say, well, they all wanted to go to the end against Boston Rob because they knew he was pissing people off and they could beat him in jury. Yeah, maybe. For one... I hope you extend that same level of charitable uh, motivation to the people that he beat in Redemption Island. I don't feel like that's ever given to them. It's all just they were stupid for never taking out Rob. And of course the All-Stars would never take out Rob. Why would they? They'd beat him. But to get to a final two against Rob, you would need to eliminate his obvious final two partner. But nobody ever did it. And that's because he kept playing them against one another. He made sure that Tom and Rupert did not align with each other in a scene that was right there it was on the page he explained to us what he was doing so you know, in terms of social engineering that's pretty impressive even if it's a level that maybe some people aren't comfortable with it's funny like a lot of people who like profess to love the social game also get really like snippy when the social game is ever like negative yeah you know, boston rob manipulating you know, rupert and tom or other people or you know tom in uh, palau manipulating people and it's like oh those are just jerks no, oh, yeah, that's also social gaming. It's taking people and using relationships and their feelings well in play. It's not just, it doesn't just count for people that you like. In the challenge where, um, the, the, the burn book challenge, he was voted as the person that people would most trust with their lives. He received the plurality of votes. So yeah, it, people can retroactively say, no, no, no. They all knew he was a jerk that they would be, but they trusted him at least in that moment of the game. And then, like, I think an early one that really caught my attention, he was doing well in challenges throughout. You know, he got, he knocked Ethan and Colby off the pole or, or off the spinning log. But the big one is in the regrettable challenge uh, discussed earlier in this podcast, They all, everybody had to go out on the obstacle course and it was one at a time. His tribe, I think, you know, at, least, the, at least she was the first person to do it, led by Sue, if it was her idea or not, recognized that Rob was so much better at everybody in this that in order to get like the final point, they all just do jumped off of the obstacle course so he would have another turn. It's just like, wow, that is dominance. And again, this was a time when I was more interested in challenges than I am now. So yeah, it is truly one of the great non-winning seasons in the history of the game. So like, I don't even need his victory that comes many seasons later. This season marked him as one of the great players of Survivor for me. And as I said, it was I've just been waiting for this. 
somebody to play Survivor this aggressively because that was the kind of watcher I was, especially at the time. I wanted more, you know. I'd already seen more standard wins of these people liked me more and we had numbers at the merge and that sort of thing. I wanted to see somebody, like, dominate it. Now, it's most important to discuss that he did not win. He dominated throughout and then was rejected at the end, which could help explain why other people did not attack the game the way he did, because there is a cost at the end. And he loses 4-3, to three, which in many fans' eyes over the years has been rewritten to, I don't know, 7-0 or 6-1. There are people who like to discuss this loss by Rob in the same breath as, like, Russell's losses. And it's like, he was one vote away in front of the most personally motivated jury in the history of survivor but he still lost and i'm not going to sit here and suggest that he shouldn't have uh you know who else doesn't rob himself he takes ownership of this loss but no the jury's decision is the jury's decision you can't eliminate that from uh the discussion because that's how you win that'd be like saying only the judges prevented me from winning a gold medal in gymnastics the, the judges are what determines who gets it and the jury's the determiner or the winner now i don't want people to then take the alternate tack that which often happens this is largely in a response to say russell fans that try to discredit his losses by blaming it on a bitter jury and people say well there's no such thing as a bitter jury that is stupid of course there is such things as a bitter jury because there are such things as bitter people. And this jury was incredibly bitter. I don't know if there's ever been a jury more bitter than the All-Stars. The, the group of people who had spent you know, three years believing that they were the greatest and you know, being minor celebrities throughout their lives and then suddenly having to be forced with the idea that they're not winning. And it's one of these two, two of the most negligible All-Stars in the cast in terms of pre-season fame. That one of them was going to win? No, no. They were super bitter. Uh, especially, again, when you get the personal relationships mixed in there. The thing about it is, is their bitterness does not negate their decision. A bitter jury in Survivor is a reality of Survivor. It is incumbent on the people who go in front of the jurors to work around their bitterness and you know, to try to engender less bitterness as possible. And he didn't do that. So his loss is, makes complete sense. And I'm talking about it in terms of him right now, because this is the section where I talk about Boston Rob, but we'll be talking about the winner uh, soon enough. But the question then becomes, could he have won? Is there something he could have done differently that would have gotten him that vote that he is missing? And it's tough because a lot of what engendered that extreme ill will, he needed to happen in order to get to where he was at. You know, I don't know that he could have played a softer game and gotten here. Now, maybe just sticking with Tom to the final three does it for him, right? I think if he votes out Tom at three, he gets Tom's vote. The question, though, is does he still get Rupert and Jenna's vote? And that's tough. You know, he needs them all. He can't lose one. He couldn't swap Tom for Rupert because both Rupert and Jenna vote for him. So that's a tough one. But in terms of like he should have been nicer to people when voted out. Absolutely. But these people, I don't know, were going to take their vote outs very well anyway. You know, I think the thing that really screwed his game was the swap, the Amber swap. That forced him to have to go to the extreme levels of that impressive move I discussed earlier. But part of it was also he found another ally to protect himself, which he needed. He was the biggest threat. The person who, at, even at this stage in Survivor, 
is typically taken out around the merge area. It's certainly what the other tribe was constantly talking about and constantly doing way too early. I will get into that later. And thus he makes his deal with Alicia. So if that swab never happens and he's able to maintain his relationship with Alicia as one of his tribe mates, one of his alliance, but not the us two final two allowing her at the end to be like, remember when I said I'd never write your name down? If that never happens, he's there. I guess people say, well, maybe he should have just let Amber go. But like Amber was a pretty essential part of getting Rob to the end. I don't think without a true partner, he's able to get to the end. I don't know if Alicia could empower him that way. But also, if Amber's out of the way, then maybe Big Tom does flip to Lex, which is the other reason that he needed to take out Lex right at the merge. Saving Lex in that moment wasn't possible, both because he needed Lex gone in order to prevent Tom from flipping, and thus Lex's team being able to move forward, but also how. How does he justify it to the rest of his tribe that they should vote out Xi'an instead of Lex? It's impossible. Nobody would agree with it. If he even tried to present that case to Alicia and Tom and Rupert and Jenna, they would know something's up. And since most of them probably know that Rob and Lex are friends, they would really know something's up. As a reminder, Kathy is not an option at this point. So it had to be Lex at that moment. Lex's only chance was to win immunity, but he did not. And a lot of this is on Lex. And I'm going to get into that later but real quick it's like this is what happens when you don't allow them to have any other targets besides yourself when you have no shields you're going to be the target and that would have been true if jerry was there or not just the difference of course being that maybe tom flips interestingly of course tom insists till he's blue in the face that he was never going to flip on rob so it was a justified loss four people on that jury he did not do enough to convince them he did not give a stirring performance at final tribal council either i think basically lex drops the hammer with his greenback speech and rob is shook for the rest of the time but it's not like amber gave a stellar performance anyway i mean most performances at final jury aren't that impressive but yeah like he loses xian's vote because xian wanted to vote for a player like herself and that is Amber, not Rob. But like, it's important to know, like, he got Kathy's vote. So even as embittered as he had made people through his aggressive gameplay, he was still able to get one of them to vote for him. So it's a tough balance, and he didn't balance it right. Thus, he does not win. So let's talk about the winner of the season. I've actually been an Amber fan uh, since Australian Outback, and it's largely for shallow reasons, at least in terms of my fandom of her from Australian Outback. Amber is the last survivor crush I had as a single man. I met my wife basically during Africa and I moved on from there. Now, that isn't to say that like when you're in a relationship or whatever, you don't have crushes or attractions to people you see on TV. Of course you do. But the intensity of it changes, and now I want to clarify that so it doesn't sound creepy. Uh, it's not that I, you know, pre-meeting uh, my wife, I was like, you know, some obsessed person thinking that I had a chance with this person from a reality TV show. It's not that. I was able to maintain a proper grip on reality. But when you have crushes, when you're single, especially if it's a long period of singledom, it can be mixed in with just your feelings of like longing for human connection. Whereas when you already have that level of connection, it, for me at least, it feels more just like, oh yeah, I find that person attractive. I enjoy the feeling I get when looking at them, but there isn't the same level of desire. It's healthy either way, but just so Amber was the last one of the show like that for me. So that's kind of where I came into the season with her, but I 
always felt that she does not get the credit she deserves for her victory on this season. And that's including from the show itself and the way that they put together this season. It is very much framed as Boston Rob's season with her as a co-star, which is unfortunate in many ways. I think it does hide some of the things that she was doing by herself, but it's also some ways understanding because that was the role that she played to some degree. You know, she let Rob be out more in front and taking the arrows. And when you do that, you're often going to be cast as the co-star. Certainly that's the way she was cast in most of her competitors' minds as well. But it was an absolute true partnership. She did not get dragged to the end. She didn't ride his coattails. They made their moves together. There's not a single person that was put on that jury by Rob that wasn't also put there by Amber. She also made deals when she was swapped over that she did not stick to. She expressed a lot more reticence about betraying them instantly, but she did. She helped manage relationships. And while we don't fully get this, it's not hard to infer based on the way we know Boston Rob has been and other times will be, and the way we've seen them together, say, in like The Amazing Race, that she probably helped soften Rob's worst impulses that allowed him to not sink his own game earlier due to his aggressiveness. I also think we can infer that something that Amber did was reinforce the idea with the other contestants that her bond with Rob might not be absolute, might not be as solid as you would assume from a romantic partnership, which allowed them all to kind of believe that there would be an in for them, that yes, Rob and Amber are hooking up, but that doesn't mean that Rob won't take me to the final too. And you see this in her discussion with Shyam. And Shiana leaves that, like, really impressed. Like, oh my god, there's, like, a real game here. And Amber implies that, yes, she trusts Rob to a degree, but more importantly, she trusts that Rob trusts her. And Shiana was like, whoa, she's really playing him. She's playing a deeper game than we all notice, which Shiana's credit. She's giving Amber the proper credit. What's actually really funny about that scene is, like, immediately after it, we cut to a Rob confessional where he says the exact same thing, only in reverse, which is just a cute way of showing how simpatico they were as partners. And that's the important thing, is that this was a partnership. This was a season that was dominated by a duo, and the winner of the season was one part of that duo, and obviously not the half of the duo that people like to focus on. Not the half of the duo that the show and the edit focuses on, but she deserves the credit for the two of them getting to the end, just as he does. That said... It's undeniable that three of the four votes that she gets to win are anti-Rob votes. They are not pro-Amber votes. So Lex, Tom, and Alicia were very much making a statement about not voting for Rob. Uh, I'm not sure they really care that much about Amber's game. They don't seem to issue any respect for it. Lex, of course, at least from what we see, does not ask questions. He just gives his greenback speech. Tom... Not exactly a long history of respecting the games of women. So it's not unfair to frame this as Rob lost, because that is what the people who voted for Amber, other than Shian, were attempting to do. They were very invested in making sure Rob lost. But Amber wasn't unaware of this phenomenon. She wasn't unaware of this potential. That was part of the calculus. It was part of the calculus in forming the alliance with Rob in the first place. And then as it continues forward, that she can continue forward and keep making moves to forward herself in the game while working with somebody who might take the blame. 
And so she, I think she deserves credit for that. It's not she didn't just happen to get there because there were a bunch of goats, you know, along for the ride. And then Rob chose her as the one he ends up losing to. No, she was in an alliance with him and she helped move that alliance with him forward just as he did. And that got me thinking a bit about a theory I've been bouncing around in my head. It's still fairly half-baked. I encourage people to respond to it, to pick it apart, if indeed anybody is still listening to a one-man podcast this late in the game. It's no secret that women just do not win Survivor at anywhere near the rate that they used to and anywhere near the rate you'd think would be representative for a show that starts out with an even number of men versus women. That was not true in the earlier days. Amber is the eighth winner of Survivor, and the fifth woman to do so. So at this point, it was a 5-3 split. By the time we get to 10, it'll be 5-5. But there's something obviously happening. The statistics are just too significant. And like most things, I think it's many things that are contributing to this. A lot of times people look to show factors. They blame production. And I do think that we need to hold production accountable, and they need to examine things that they may be doing to create this bias. And the obvious problem is sexism in general, but sexism isn't like a new trend. <laughs> it's not something that we just invented over the past few years. Believe me, I've been watching some of the older Survivor. Very much existed back when women you know, still were able to win as much as they were. And I think what was happening is just the attitudes of juries have changed. And the result of All-Stars is part of that. I think uh, Russell Hance losing twice is probably even the bigger moment of that. In that Amber could make a decision like this that I will partner with someone who will take the blame for the moves. And I don't know if that is still a path to victory available for players in general and thus women. That was something that resulted in a few wins, Amber not being the only one. And I think that's just because modern juries have the attitude of less voting against the person they deem most responsible for them losing. I think a shift has happened that I'm not saying they're still not bitter people or anymore or you know, disappointed about being beaten, but I think there's been enough like shame heaped upon quote-unquote bitter juries for outcomes that the fandom at large, and I mean the large portion of fandom, not necessarily the type that listen to podcast fandom, about some of these decisions that people don't want to be that juror anymore. People don't want to just take their hurt feelings and say, you're the reason why I'm on this jury, thus I will not vote for you, which was precisely what was happening in this jury. So now, if you're in an Amber situation, it's hard to imagine her winning. Like, if we duplicated this scenario again, but not with all the history, the 15 years or whatever that's progressed since then. But a bunch of returnees, a man and woman partnership runs through, even if we want to have it romantic. And the man is credited for most of the moves. You know, he's more out in front. The woman is more under the radar. The man will probably win because he won't get the blame for the result. He will get the credit for the result. And this isn't to say that the woman wasn't doing anything. This is how... Basically, what I'm saying is the sexism inherent in that judgment used to work in their favor a bit because the sexism that makes them think that the man is the more responsible party of the duo before was a negative. It was something that they would use against the man. Now it's a positive. Well, you don't like it that they beat me, but I guess I got to tip my cap to him. 
Whereas before, it's like, I don't like that they beat me. I am going to blame him. So the sexism is the same, just the attitude towards it. And I think this is my theory anyway, along with, again, a bunch of other factors. I'm not ruling out other things other than the fire making. I thoroughly reject that as a reason why women aren't winning. Because in doing so, that suggests and implies that women are incapable of making fire. I'm not willing to say that. But I think that's part of it, that juries are less prone to blame the person they deem responsible for their loss. So just going with somebody like a Rob and hoping that he takes all the heat from the jury just isn't going to happen as much. For it to happen, that person also has to be just like a really hateful person, a Russell-type player. And we don't get as much of that. So I think that might explain part of the imbalance. If you look at a lot of the early winners, sometimes a jury was more likely to reward the person who had less blood on their hands. And nowadays, I don't think that's as true. They want to credit the person with the blood on their hands, depending on how bloody it gets. How do we combat this? Because I don't think you can undo this. I don't think attitudes will change on this. Unless they just start casting a lot of horrible men in the Russell Hans mode. That's not a fix. That's not something I want to see. I think just the answer is that it's now, it's tough to be under the radar. If you want to be in a partnership to do a lot, you need to make sure that your contribution to that partnership is known, is obvious, and do not count on people uh, realizing it due to your uh, wonderful answering of their questions at Final Tribal Council. That's not a thing. Now, to be clear, I know that's not an easy thing. We live in a society less prone to give women the credit they deserve for such actions, or if it is obvious for them, prone to punish them for it. So I've talked about Rob, I've talked about Amber, now it's time to talk about Rob and Amber. And another thing that I like about this season is that I like the romance. I like them pairing off, kind of experiencing that through them. I understand if that is not for everybody. Not everybody watches the show to see romance, but it's unique. It's it's, uh, something that different that happened on the show that hasn't happened to the same degree since. It's not something that you'd expect. I like when the show can uh, surprise me. And I think this point, we can probably drop any cynicism that may have tinted in the original viewing of this pairing. Uh, what with the, the 17 years and four human beings that have followed it. Like, I think at this point, we can safely say that this was a legitimate a romance that we were seeing, that we were actually seeing two people fall in love. And I, I don't know. I, I like that. I think it's nice. And I'll admit right now that I was particularly prone to get wrapped into such a storyline when I first watched this. Because at the time, I was engaged. In in fact, would be married like a week after America's uh, Tribal Council, the episode where they gave Rupert the same amount of money that they gave Amber. So yeah, I was at the peak of being in love with the very idea of love. So very primed to respond to this storyline. And also, you know, uh, two people in their early 20s getting married, no position to judge the uh, quickness of uh, this relationship. I mean, we did not necessarily get engaged five months in, but it still was probably not a long time frame and it didn't seem that way to us. So, yeah, I was all in on this then. And I would say it holds up on a rewatch when you're watching it now. You're seeing these long-time Survivor characters really fall for one another the first time, and I think it especially plays well after having seen them each return to play together one more time in Winners at War. Uh, Moving on, 
perhaps even more so than another opportunity to heap praise on Rob Mariano. I think the reason why I wanted to share my thoughts on All-Stars is that I've had takes about Lex Vandenberg for about 17 years, just waiting to get out. For the longest time, there were few things, if any, in Survivor that made me angrier than the hypocrisy demonstrated by Lex and All-Stars. And time has passed and I've let it go. You know, I imagine the principles involved have let it go. But watching it again uh, does not change my opinion on that. The first time I watched it, I didn't know the depth of the relationship between Lex and Rob, which does change the calculus a bit. It does help explain the hard feelings. I didn't follow the backstage shenanigans. I still try not to because we get as much of a view of that as we do like within Survivor. It's all just rumors and conjecture anyway. But they weren't on the same season, so I didn't know that they were friends. But apparently, yes, they were very close friends to the degree that, like, Rob stayed at Lex's house, I believe. I think the rumor is that he helped him get over a bad breakup that Rob had with Kelly Goldsmith, I believe is the rumor. Whichever. They were really close friends. I will allow that. I will allow that they had probably made pre-game alliances to, you know, agreement to play the game together. None of that really changes um, the fact that Lex got very hurt feelings for Rob doing to him what he was prepared to do to everyone. Every episode from the dissolution of Shapara on features Lex giving some version of the it's not show friends, it's show business speech. Like whether it was voting out Colby, Ethan, or Jerry, he continually says doing what's right for him and his game is more important than his outside-the-game relationships or how much he likes somebody, that he will not this time allow that to happen. That as much as he may like Ethan, as much as the bond that they might have, that's not what this is about. This is All-Stars. We're here to play the game. Now, obviously, some of that also helps underline the uh, dramatic irony of him then later choosing to do something that seems to be based on outside-the-game relationships. But it also just shows us, why was it fine for you to do that before, but not fine for Rob to do it? And Lex would argue, as he tries to in the reunion, that it's not the same. I didn't have an agreement with them. This You guys don't know. You guys don't know the personal. And whatever, man. For one part of the game, when it's advantageous to you, when you are in a power position, relationships don't matter, man. I just got to do what I need to do in order to further myself in the game. And then when he's no longer in a power position and somebody returns that thought to him, suddenly this is a deep betrayal for a stack of greenbacks. And that is just bullshit. <laughs> like <they're, laughs> He sucks. Uh, look, there's heart feelings all around this season. This is a season defined by the inflated ego of these all-stars, a bunch of people who had suddenly had a level of celebrity thrust on them that is not comparable to anything that we see in Survivor now. So on a human level, it's understandable, but this is what's going on here, and Lex is the poster child for this. He thinks everything is fine when it's good for Lex. When it's involved with Lex, any move against Lex is a deeply personal offense, and frankly, this extends to his time in Africa. He is the guy who flips out when he gets a stray vote for him. Africa being another season that I've rewatched over the past year. There's a couple things to play here. First off, it is clear that despite what he says and the way he will keep portraying himself as the victimized party in this, is that there was strategy involved in his decision to vote Jerry instead of Amber. 
I'll even allow that that's not the primary motivation. I will allow that this was a bro doing something for a bro. Sure. But Lex needed Rob at that stage of the game, largely due to his own poor gameplay. Lex cannot proceed in this game very far without Rob's help. Now, the counter-argument to that is that Lex had a pre-game relationship with Tom. So if he votes out Amber, they go into the merge down 4-5, and then Tom flips to his side and he runs. So, like, he already had his clear path, his runway, all the way to the finals, and he put that in jeopardy to do a favor for a friend. But I don't buy it. First off, Tom himself will swear up and down, as he does in the reunion, I believe, maybe even the America's Tribal Council, that he never turned on Rob. He was never even considering turning on Rob. Rob is the great betrayer for voting him out an episode early, two spots early, I guess. But that, no, Tom was loyal and always was going to be loyal. Take that for what you will. If that is true, then Lex had no path other than Rob's help. And Rob isn't going to offer that help if he votes out Amber, right? Now, even if you say that Tom was lying, and he had, this is another example of stunning hypocrisy, I just don't know why Tom would flip anyway, like even if he wanted to. Because is Tom going to throw out the position that he has in the game, in his tribe, a tribe that has been doing very well, that has gotten along very well, to form an alliance with, like, Jerry and Sheehan, like, people he's basically meeting at the merge. I think him and Jerry have, like, a lunch together during the fake merge swap thing that they do. And who knows about, like, outside of the game relationships. But it's also not hard to imagine that Tom isn't hanging out with Sheehan on his farm. Yeah, so Tom would be taking a huge leap to what advantage? You know, what is Lex offering Tom that he doesn't already have? I don't think that that was actually in play. Lex needs Rob's help, and that is why he does it. That's why Mr. It's All About the Game, Not About Friendships made the choice to keep Amber instead of getting rid of Jerry. So when he then uses this all as his deep-rooted anger and, like, this fucking mohawk and every dirty look he gives when somebody talks about strategy or loyalty or whatever... I just, I will never buy into it. It is sour grapes. It is, he got beat and he feels dumb for being beaten like that. He believed, he did. But it's because he wanted to believe. He needed to believe because he had put himself in a position that he needed the last card in the deck to help him out. And that brings us to the other part of it is that Lex really should be discussed more often as one of the like primary foe masterminds of this game. He has an incredibly outsized opinion of his ability at survivor and you saw this often in africa a season it should be noted that he was probably one immunity challenge away from winning but he is constantly just overreacting to things famously about getting an extra vote but more often it was just you know the dude needed to chill a bit in all stars his big flaw is that he breaks a cardinal rule that we've often discussed here on this site a rule that I should say I don't know applies as much to the modern game due to the early merge and frequent swaps. But he plays the post-merge game pre-merge the entire time. There isn't a vote that Lex makes in All-Stars that isn't driven by what he thinks he needs to do to set himself up for the end game. So he is constantly voting out and discussing voting out the people he views will be challenges for him to beat post-merge. So he's trying to take them out now. And this is why he votes out Hatch, because it wasn't for honorable reasons. Colby, Ethan... And then when he votes out Jerry, it's because he's trying to set himself up in the next part of the game. 
This is why his tribe continued to lose. I mean, look, it's possible they would have lost anyway. I mean, clearly they lost in order to give the opportunity to vote those people out. But it's also incredibly clear that he was forfeiting that in his decision making. He was not valuing the potential contributions that those players would make in the tribe phase. And thus he kept going. And really, like the imbalance that he is facing when he hits the merge could have been worse. Sue Hawk quits. They get a swap where he is handed somebody else in the other tribe. Like they should have gone down even further in numbers if the merge was going to hit that point. And in doing so, yeah, Lex continually weakens his tribe, thus weakening his ability to maneuver in the second half at his game that still at that, that point in time was very much about carrying numbers into the merge. But also he succeeds in ensuring that he has no shielding once they get to the situation. If the swap had worked out in a different way and his tribe was more likely to be down numbers, there's always a possibility that they could be up numbers of one half of the swap. He would have been the biggest target then. Now this gets into the part where there's some conspiracy theories. That swap was basically done to screw over at least one member of Shapara. Or possibly some people would say you know, Amber specifically. And that conspiracy exists just due to the way that it was structured. You weren't like digging in and just grabbing something at random. They had you standing in a section and then you had to basically pick the buff on top. So a very easy swap to manipulate if that was something they wanted to do. That's an aside. But yeah, this is what costs Lex the game is that he goes into the merge down numbers and it's not because he did his bro a favor he would have been down numbers even if he had voted out amber it would have been closer numbers and this is where people the defenders of lex most of whom are really just antagonists of rob i don't know if there's a lot of lex vandenberg stands still left in the survivor community will say well he had tom but again i for the reasons i laid out i don't know that he had tom in a weak situation, I think Tom might have combined with Lex if he was strong. Heck, having Ethan there might have helped in that scenario. What's really weird is that Lex is overcorrecting, as many players do in return, for not winning his original season. But that would make you believe that the lesson he took out of Africa is that having close relationships and trying to remain strong as an alliance and as a tribe early is meaningless. And what he really needs to do is ensure that he gets to the second half of the game with as few threats to him as possible. But that's not why he lost Africa. He lost Africa because he failed to beat Kim Johnson in the final challenge. Like, by all indications, what people have said after the fact, like he would have won if he had made the final two against Kim or against Ethan. So it's weird that suddenly like he comes into this season and is just like, I got to get rid of anybody who might be a threat in the second half of the game. But you need to get to the second half of the game in a stronger position. And uh, he just wasn't interested in that. So that's how you get to a situation where it's maybe I shouldn't vote out this person the game has handed to me because what does that do for me? I'm still going to be down numbers, still a long haul looking forward. And if you hadn't lost every single immunity challenge from the time that the uh, first not swap but dissolution happens, you wouldn't be in this situation. If they had won one challenge, then he would have had a much stronger bargaining position. And look, can I guarantee that keeping Colby and or Ethan around would have helped them win? I cannot, but it certainly didn't help. All right, moving on to a couple quick takes from other parts of the cast. Uh, Xi'an, 
I know it's kind of a hipster take among online Survivor fans that, like, Xi'an was the best part of the season. Xi'an's the only good part of the season. I dislike everybody on that season but Xi'an. And I gotta say, I don't get that take at all. She sucks. She is not good at this season. She annoyed me frequently. She mostly just sits around and talking to us about how much smarter she is than all the people who are actually having an effect on the game, which I guess probably explains why online fans like her. How could they relate to a player more than somebody who really doesn't do anything but has nothing but criticism for those that do? So yeah, I guess she's the original shit poster. More than that, she's the original Troyzan. Her big move this season is delaying her inevitable demise by a matter of days by winning a challenge. And upon which, what does she do? She taunts her fellow tribe mates. She yells at them and talks about how they couldn't stop her and that she's better and yada, yada, yada. Thus negating any potential opportunity to use this momentary immunity to maybe form some counter-alliances, get people to work with her. It's exactly what Troyzan will do in a later season, yet he is universally recognized as kind of a clown for that. But she's celebrated. Don't really get that. Kind of doesn't really make much sense. Just in general, and this coming from somebody who does it frequently, taunting people is a terrible way of getting them to work with you. And if Survivor is a social game, if we're going to sit here and say Boss and Rob was terrible at Survivor because he didn't manage relationships, I don't know how we can celebrate Xi'an. Also, she clearly gave herself a nickname, and that is a foul. But at least she pointed out the hypocrisy of her castmates. She does this at Final Tribal Council. She does this at the reunion. Maybe that's it. Maybe uh, that's her last impression that she leaves, and she echoed the statements of the viewers, and thus people were like, yeah, good, good you. Instead, I think a person who deserves more credit than she typically gets is Jenna Lewis, I thought she played a very good game this season. She was able, from the outset, to frame the voting priorities on a five-person tribe. No place to hide. It's five people, and she was able to target a group that did not include herself. So she, a young woman, typically be in danger in such a situation. They are not helping us win uh, challenges. You have to go. But she's able to, right off the jump, be like, we don't want winners to win again. It's unfair. None of us won. Why should they get a chance to do it again? I think that's probably where some of the backlash comes, because for the viewers, it's like, well, then why do we even bother casting them if winners aren't going to have a chance? But it's not her responsibility to make it more fair for her competitors. What she does in that moment is set a criteria. We're not going to let winners win again. That criteria does not apply to her. She is not a winner. So this is really smart. And she takes control very quickly in this season. And she's a type of player that doesn't generally allow to do that. When control is lost due to the dissolution of her original tribe, she quickly finds herself situated really well in the next tribe. And of course, in that final four alliance with Robin Amber, that itself isn't necessarily special because he was in a final alliance with most people, but it worked out. She gets to the final three and is within one immunity challenge win from possibly winning the entire thing. Now, winning that immunity maybe wasn't in the cards for her anyway, but it's the sort of thing that she possibly could have. She twitches and is out of the challenge and doesn't even recall doing it. At the reunion, Propes does the meaningless question that he likes to do every once in a while of reprobing the jury of what they would have done in this hypothetical vote versus the other. And in that, he says, oh, well, I guess Boston Rob would have won if he would have taken Jenna instead of Amber. 
for one, that's usually bullshit because it's really not a lot of point of asking people how they would vote now, removed from the immediate emotion of the situation, and having watched the edited presentation of their season. But in this case, it's even worse because what he actually does is probe the Amber voters. If it was Jenna instead of Amber, would you have voted for Jenna? And I believe in that instance, Xi'an says, no, she would not have voted for her, which I have no trouble believing. One, Xi'an was actually very pro-Amber. She casts a vote for Amber on her way out to tell everybody, that's the person who's going to win this season. So casting that vote at the end is a way of making herself look right. But also, Xi'an really didn't like Jenna, so that makes sense to me. But what Probes doesn't do is probe the Rob voters if they would still vote for Rob if Jenna was a question. And this is important because two of Rob's voters are Rupert, Jenna's main alliance partner, and Jenna. So now we have replaced that with Amber. Are we sure Amber votes for Rob the next day after he totally betrays her in what could be the deepest betrayal in the history of Survivor? I don't know. So I think Jenna had a real chance at winning this season with the path that she was on. It just didn't work out that way, but I think she deserves more credit than she gets. I think a reason she doesn't get that credit, and I touched upon it a bit earlier, is kind of the fan reaction of the season in general. And I hear this a bunch, is that fans just didn't like All-Stars as much because their faves didn't do well. They were excited about certain players coming back into the game, and a lot of them crashed and burned early. This was a unique experience because, of course, nobody had come back in the game And the very concept of having pre-game rooting interests was completely new. Back then, we would come into every season and turn on the TV and get our impressions from those opening moments. Here, you already had impressions. You already were rooting for certain outcomes before the season had ever started. And those outcomes probably didn't include success by Jerry Silent Friend from Season 2, the Merge Boot from Season 4, or the other cute girl from Season 1. I'm not like that. And this season is probably what showed me that I'm not like that. Sure, when we now have returning seasons, I do hope that like the people that I like the most do well. But I'm also willing to be won over by people during that season if they are successful in the game in interesting ways. So like Game Changers is a season where the people who were ultimately successful just weren't that interesting about it. And a lot of their success, with the exception of Sarah, seemed largely predicated by fluky circumstances within the game rather than their own doing. That was not the case in All-Stars. Whatever else you may think of them, it's clear that Rob and Amber got themselves into the position that they were. And in fact, circumstances worked against them in one particular instance. I also don't think they did it in a boring way. I get it if it, you know, it's not the way you're interested in Survivor. Boston Rob is an acquired taste. A taste, you know, acquired by many, but not by all. Another reason I've heard given for a lower opinion of this season is the personal fallout that came from it, that this was a messy season. And I guess that fans care about that. I don't know. Somebody who feels this way would have to explain it better than I. I'm just summarizing things that I've heard because I don't get that at all. I don't care if these people aren't friends anymore. Is it important to you that the cast of Brooklyn Nine-Nine also hang out after taping is done? Like, this is a TV show. They were on a TV show doing things for my entertainment. What comes out of that, as long as it's not deeply ugly criminal type stuff, what do I care? Especially in that era, we'd watch a season... And then the people would basically cease to exist unless they had a photo spread in a men's magazine or something, and then and that was it. 
until this season when some of them came back and then they disappeared again unless they continue to appear on other reality shows as a couple. So if we're talking about this season had terrible fallout for the competitors and their personal relationships, I should remind you that this is the one that created perhaps the most enduring relationship in reality TV history. But yeah, like this is a pre-social era. What do we know that these people are hanging out? I guess people are just deep into like the survivors sucks message boards. Yeah, I don't care that these people aren't friends anymore. That doesn't affect me. What I cared about is that it was a season of what at the time felt like very interesting and game-changing type play. Yeah, this was signaling the change into a new era of Survivor, which the show desperately needed. The juice was starting to leave the franchise. And if it was going to continue as a, a TV show, which was a thing that I was very interested in because I was interested in it as more than just this curio, this, this new thing that everybody's talking about it had to be more about the game it could no longer be about the novelty because that was dead so that brings me into my final thought is did i enjoy the season do i still enjoy the season and by and large the answer is yes this probably does not shock you and that almost entirely has to do with the fact that i like the star and the starring duo of the season and i think if you don't like that you're not going to Frankly, it probably aligns to my way of thinking of a lot of seasons like this and that I don't hate seasons of Survivor that are dominated by a person or one or two people. It might not be the best Survivor seasons. I don't rank them in my top 10 or anything like that, but I actually enjoy seeing dominance every once in a while in this game, and that's what the season is about. Obviously, there is a major reason to not like this season, and I spent the first half hour of this podcast or whatever discussing that. But in general, I've always enjoyed All-Stars. I always kind of liked it, and I found revisiting that, for the most part, I did again. I'd say I enjoyed it more than some of the other old-school seasons that I had been revisiting over the past year or so. More than Australia, more than Africa, not as much as Pearl Islands. When we first started doing rankings for this site, I think I had All-Stars a lot higher than uh, John, who was at the time the only other person doing rankings. We've since expanded it to the rest of the quote-unquote staff. And I think each year I've been lowering All-Stars a bit and that like, okay, I was probably overvaluing it. Now, it doesn't get lowered too much because a lot of the new seasons have come in definitely behind it. But I think I'm going to stop doing that. Now that I've rewatched it, I'm more confident that I think this is a decent season. It's not like a great season. It's not in the upper tier. But I think it's better than all the bad seasons. And I personally like it more than a lot of the mediocre seasons. So I watched this season with my kids, as I stated earlier. Largely because I knew they wanted to watch Rupert again. So how did they like it? They liked watching Rupert again. (laughs) At first, they were excited. It's like, hey, Rupert and Ethan and Colby. Those were the favorites that, like my oldest in particular, was responded to. The youngest also really liked Tina, the first go-around. They jeered and booed Jerry, aligning them to a live reunion audience. And then it quickly became all about Rupert for them. When they're doing tribal challenges, especially for immunity, they don't care how well Ethan... Well, I'm sorry. They don't care how well Colby's tribe does. They care how how well Rupert's tribe does. Once Ethan is on Colby's tribe, it doesn't matter. It's still about Rupert's tribe. I think even they had to admit what a disaster Rupert's shelter was and nearly killing his tribe. But other than that, they're pro-Rupert. And Rupert is a competitor throughout the entire season, right into the final episode. So by and large, they liked it. 
I think they're starting to get a little less interested in Survivor in general because they'd rather watch YouTube videos of people playing the video games that they could be playing or whatever. So it's a fine thing for like family entertainment, but right now we have other options for that. Disney Plus puts out a new show, a new episode every Friday, that sort of thing. So we're probably going to take a break from Survivor for now as a family watching thing. If we pick it up again, I think Palau would be the next because my oldest has been very interested in the idea of what if one tribe loses every challenge. So I think that he would really enjoy that. And given that they're still at the age where challenges are a big part of the draw, seeing somebody who wins a lot of challenges yet wins Survivor would mean something to them. It did mean something to me because that has not been the case in the four seasons that we've watched. It wasn't in Australia where Colby lost, something that my oldest is still having trouble dealing with, although now he's turned it towards Colby was dumb, which not inaccurate. Africa, Ethan, while a professional athlete, did not do particularly well in challenges. Obviously, Sandra did not do well. And then, yes, uh, Rob, who won, I don't know, what is it, four or five, did not win this season. So I think it was important for Survivor, and it might be important for them to see that, like, yeah, you can sometimes be really good at challenges and win. The last thing they said is throughout most of the season, they'd be questions about the Rob and Amber relationship. They are now 8 and 11, and they're still just like the fandom at the time. Is this real? So when the proposal comes, they got really excited about that, at which point I filled them in on the, what had came from that moment. Yes, they did get married. They are still married. They've had four kids. Uh, in the words of my 11-year-old, this was a cute season. So there you go. I'm not sure I could wrap up uh, All-Stars better than that. Thank you for listening, if you still are. I fully admit that I don't know if this was a good experience listening. I don't know if listening to the same person for well over an hour is a good way to spend that time. But yeah, hopefully you got something out of it. It was an experiment on my part. I've been recording in pieces, which you might have been able to deduce due to some choppiness of the audio. And then I've been editing it. And I got to say, I started this because I didn't feel like writing. This was much harder. Uh, imagine writing, and at this point, this would be like a chapter of a book. And like every sentence has like two typos that you need to remove manually, like through typesetting or something. That's what this has been because I figured if you were going to listen to just me natter on for so long, at the least I could do was edit out some of the worst parts of it, some of the verbal tics that I go through. And I got to say, there was roughly 11 billion you knows and ums. So I don't know if I'll be doing this again. I don't know if anybody would want me to do this again. But it was a, a little experiment. And largely, I wanted to share some thoughts about All-Stars. And I did not have anybody who would want to discuss them with me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can comment on this and any other posts on our website. That's at purplerockpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show, various podcatchers, including Spotify or on YouTube. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Purple Rock Pod. I am at Purple Rock Andy. That is all I have to say. Let me hit the theme music. Oh,